You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. To continue with our series on Iran, this week we bring you part two of our interview with Roham Alvandi, Associate Professor of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science. If you haven't already listened through part one or you're just now catching up with our Iran series, you can find all of our previous episodes on your listening app of choice. Thanks for tuning in. And here's Elisa. The Shah had the ability at the time to deal where it had to deal with Iraq, and he also had to deal with the Kurds. You know, very modernly, currently, it is the case that the United States has relied on the sort of spit and fire and determination and strength of the Kurds in order to provide assistance in places like Syria. They are occasional partners to the United States, and we think of them, and I think to a degree admire them. But the Shah was able to sort of manage the new leader in Iraq, who was then Saddam Hussein. And I just would ask you to talk a bit about that. Educate our listeners who may not be so familiar with that, or, and I apologize for butchering this, and I will, Shah al-Arab and Khuzestan. We hear of Kurdistan, we hear of all sorts of stands, which I think just means country, right? But I don't think this is something that is uh, within the knowledge of most Americans. Yeah, the situation between Iran and Iraq was a very unstable one. Pretty much from 1958 onwards, after the coup in Iraq that brought an end to the Iraqi monarchy, you had one sort of Arab nationalist radical regime after another, one coup after another in succession throughout the 1960s until you get to 1968 when the Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein came to power. And, you know, this was a radical Arab nationalist regime that was supported by the Soviet Union and that was making all kinds of claims to ownership of Iranian territory in Khuzestan, which you mentioned, that's the south western region of Iran, which has a significant Arabic-speaking population, unlike the majority Persian-speaking population in Iran. It also happens to be where most of Iran's oil is. So it's very strategically important. And it's just abuts the border with Iraq, which at the southern point runs along a waterway known as the Shat al-Arab. The, uh, the Iraqis call it the Shat al-Arab. The Iranians call it the Arvandrud, but most people refer to it as the Shat al-Arab. And that's a very strategically important waterway because for the Iraqis, it's really their only outlet to the Persian Gulf. So most of, and it's also the waterway on which the big Abadan, Iran's big Abadan oil refinery sits. So you can imagine all of these ships carrying Iranian oil and Iraqi oil sailing up and down the Shant al-Arab into the Persian Gulf. Whoever controls that waterway controls the lifeline, certainly of Iraq, and to a large extent of Iran. And so that became a very, that's a, that was a point of great contention and sensitivity between the Iranians and the Iraqis as to where exactly the border was and who would control the shipping through that waterway. And one way that they would sort of challenge each other would be to poke their nose into the internal affairs of the other country. The Iranians would support the Kurds on the Iraqi side of the border. The Iraqis would support the Arabs on the Iranian side of the border. And this was, you know, a kind of proxy battle that went on for decades. The Iranians were much better at it than the Iraqis. And and the Shah ran a, a huge operation in Iraqi Kurdistan for decades, supporting Mullah Mustafa Barzani, the father of the 
present Barzanis who run the uh, Kurdish region of Iraq today. But, you know, alongside the US and Israel, they funded and armed a massive insurgency in Iraqi Kurdistan, which they used very effectively to weaken these Arab nationalist regimes in Baghdad and keep them at bay and stop them from making trouble for Iran and for Israel, you know, in other theaters. So there are some interesting parallels between that and what's going on today in the sense that, you know, that the 70s, you know, that was also a time when the US had sort of just extracted itself from a very costly war, you know, in the third world, just as the US has now withdrawn from Afghanistan, the war in Iraq is over. Same, same thing. This was the post-Vietnam era in the 1970s. There was a sense that the US wanted to pivot away from the Middle East, wants to deal with bigger geostrategic issues. Today, it's China. Back then, it was the Cold War. It's in that context that these regional players like the Kurds become very significant. But, you know, they'd be foolish to count too much on the Americans because history tends to repeat itself. And and the United States has a fairly, because of its distance from the Middle East, has a fairly short-term view of its interests in the region. Whereas for the local player, Iran, Iraq, they know that they're not going anywhere. They're going to have to deal with these actors in the region for decades, for centuries to come. So that puts the Kurds in a very difficult position. You saw what happened just a few years ago when they tried to organize a referendum in in Iraqi Kurdistan for independence and the whole thing collapsed in failure. I think they need to be quite cautious about you know how they play these regional politics and the extent to which they can sort of rely on the US as an outside power that's going to come and sort of protect their interests. That's interesting. Yes, it has been a sort of tortured alliance that's on again, off again, on again, off again. And there has been an abandonment of the Kurds more than once, more than once in the last three decades, certainly. Let's move on for just a moment. In in the national security law space, one of the, the, the principles behind our laws is to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in general. So what agreements were forged during the Shah's reign and how did the Shah manage any U.S. efforts at containment of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in that region? Well, Iran's nuclear program began in the 1950s under the Atoms for Peace program that the Eisenhower administration has. Um, Westinghouse built a, a small research reactor in Tehran that's still there and part of Tehran University. But the nuclear program that we know today really began in 1974, you know, this huge increase in oil prices because of the 1973 Arab-Israeli war, that gave Iran the resources to be able to really crash start a, a nuclear program, very, very expensive nuclear program. The thinking behind it was that, look, fossil fuels are limited. Iran can't rely on oil forever. It's going to run out at some point. Iran's domestic consumption of energy was also increasing as the population increases. And so the Shah's thinking was that we need a a sustainable source of electricity for domestic Iranian consumption so that we can use oil and gas as a raw material for manufactured exports like petrochemical products. This was the plan, basically, to build a huge petrochemical industry And it's basically what the Saudis have done now and what many oil producing countries have done. Selling oil as a raw material is not really very lucrative for them. It's much more lucrative to actually manufacture things with it and sell that on the international market. 
Anyway, this was the context in which Iran started this civilian nuclear energy program. But of course, the problem with the civilian nuclear energy program is no matter how you design it, it always has the potential to be used for dual-use purposes. The Iranian program was, was designed from the beginning to be as safe as possible. I mean, they opted for light water uranium reactors, which are very different, say, to the Pakistani program or to the Israeli program or others. But, you know, there were always, there were these concerns from the, from the very beginning. The legal framework was, of course, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And the Iranian argument from the very beginning was that, well, Iran has a right to the full nuclear fuel cycle under the NPT. And as long as it gets access to that, they can agree to all kinds of IAEA safeguards. And that was all well and good, except that 1974 happened to be when India tested its first nuclear device, the so-called peaceful nuclear explosion. And that really changed the atmosphere in Washington and the appetite for nuclear proliferation. And so the pressure suddenly increased dramatically to impose safeguards on Iran that went much further than anything they were obliged to agree to under the NPT. So for example, one of the demands was that Iran agree to give up nuclear fuel reprocessing. And one of the ideas that Kissinger floated was that there would be a multinational nuclear fuel reprocessing plant, say in Iran or in Pakistan, that would reprocess fuel for a number of countries under safeguards. And that therefore, no one country could use that facility to secretly stockpile plutonium, which is the byproduct of the reprocessing process. Of course, nobody agreed to that. <laughs> when the Iranians saw that there are just too many conditions that the Americans are putting on any potential bilateral nuclear agreement, they went to the Europeans. And the, the French and the Germans were more than happy to sell them all the reactors they wanted and, uh, with very little safeguards in place, much to the fury of Kissinger. But these were multi-billion dollar contracts that were hugely valuable to the Europeans at a time of economic malaise in Europe, they were, you know, really were not in a position to turn them down, but it really pulled the rug out from under any international non-proliferation effort, you know, the so-called nuclear suppliers group. The only thing which really stopped the nuclear program was not, was the revolution. The onset of the revolution in the, in the late 1970s was what really slowed it down. It was not any international treaty or safeguards or anything like that. If, if the revolution hadn't happened, I think, you know, they would have by now probably six, seven, eight functioning reactors in Iran and probably the whole nuclear fuel cycle up and running. Okay. So that's interesting. So they set themselves back <laughs> through the development of, of uh, nuclear. We've only got you for a finite amount of time. And, and I want to, I want to discuss two final topics with you, but I'd like to start with the revolution that occurred in 1979, what would you say shifted in Iran, one? And then two, we're living in an age in which we understand the importance of the access to information. And as we look at Iran today, we see a country that is somewhat cut off and has very little access to outside information. And the access to information, given the advent of the internet, has become a hot topic, but foreign interference is not something new. And the United States has been successful. So what did it look like shortly before the revolution? And what would you say were the key factors that led up to the ascent of the Ayatollah Khomeini? 
The Shah managed to alienate almost every segment of Iranian society, but for different reasons. And some of it had to do with the United States, but some of it had nothing really to do with the United States. For the middle class, the Iranian middle class, which had been really created by the Pahlavis, they were the beneficiaries of many of the social and economic reforms that had taken place in the Pahlavi era. But they felt that, you know, they had no say in running the country at all. There was no accountability, no democratic process. The constitution, which officially called for a parliamentary democracy, you know, was completely ignored by the Shah. There was a sort of democratic deficit, you know, whereas the country had made all kinds of progress in social and economic realms, it really hadn't made much progress in moving towards functioning democratic institutions. For a whole other segment of Iranian society, you know, lower classes of Iranian society who tended to be more religious and who tended to be more conservative, they were very unhappy with what they perceived as the kind of snobbery of the Shah's regime and this kind of cultural alienation that they felt, that, you know, that they were seen as backward and and that the Shah's regime was trying to modernize them and drag them into a kind of Western way of living that was um, alien to them. The term that was used for this was West toxification. The, The social base of the monarchy was eroded over time, eroded it until you, until by the end of the 70s, you got to a point where there's nobody left to defend the, the monarchy, you know, other than a handful of generals and, and politicians, everybody for their own reason had their grievances with the Shah. And they could all agree on one thing, which is that the Shah must go. They couldn't agree on what should replace the Shah, but they all agreed that the Shah must go. And what happened is that as soon as they succeeded in toppling the Shah, the violence began and the, the factional fighting began, Ayatollah Khomeini came out on top. You know, he, he and the religious conservatives managed, had an ability to mobilize masses in Iran, the popular masses, particularly lower class masses, in a way that secular opponents of the Shah just couldn't. And that gave them tremendous power. And they very quickly set about creating a, a state in their own image with their own armed forces, the Revolutionary Guards, um, and all the other paraphernalia of a modern state. But there was, you know, nobody in 1978 thought that Ayatollah Khomeini was going to return to Iran and create a theocracy, because Khomeini was very clever in, in what he would say and not say when he was in exile in Paris and when he was being interviewed by journalists. You know, he would sort of obfuscate on these questions and, and because he knew that the trick to success was just maintaining the re- unity of this um, revolutionary movement until the Shah had been dislodged. For the Americans, you know, they, the Carter administration really was completely caught back-footed by the revolution. I mean, first of all, they didn't really pay much attention to what was going on in Iran until two or three months before the Shah left. Carter was dealing with Camp David, a whole series of other issues in the Middle East. Um, and there was a sense that, oh, well, at the end of the day, the Shah is going to survive. You know, he has this army, he has Savak. How could he possibly fall from power? And then it was only when it was really too late that they realized that, my God, you know, this he's actually going to fall from power. And then they tried to reach out to the new revolutionary regime. And that in itself created a panic in Tehran amongst various factions who were very unhappy that the provisional government in Iran, which was a relatively moderate government, the Bozagon government, you know, was doing deals with the United States. And that really was the precipitant of the 
Tehran hostage crisis. It was a it was really a coup d'état against this moderate Bozagon government, which was then toppled and replaced by much much more radical figures within within the revolution. And and Khomeini himself really agreed to that and saw it as an opportunity to consolidate his position as the as the leader of the revolution. And so the Americans, in a in a way, were used by the revolutionaries for their own domestic political purposes to consolidate their power, to get rid of the moderates. And really, that's the trajectory we've been on ever since. Throughout the 80s and 90s, it's these hardliners, these conservatives in Iran have really had the, the upper hand. And there's been sort of effort after effort by more moderate figures to try to challenge them, to try to steer Iran in a better direction, and it's failed every time. And now, we find ourselves at a point where Iranians have completely given up on this idea that you can't, that there is this sort of elusive moderate out there who can steer the Islamic Republic in a better direction. They've really come to the conclusion that, you know, this regime can't be reformed and has to go. There's no consensus yet, or we don't really know yet what exactly would replace it and where we're going. Um, so in a, in a sense, we're back to 1979, where we know that we don't, want this regime anymore, but we've only just started the conversation about, well, what do we want to actually replace it? Well, there are probably some relatives of the Pallavis living in Great Falls, Virginia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, but, I, but, but I, I, honestly, I honestly wonder the extent to which even, even Reza Pahlavi, the, the crown prince, really wants to govern Iran or anything like that. I think he's quite sincere when he says that, you know, he, he wants to play some kind of sort of midwife to whatever is whatever comes after the Islamic Republic. That's um, an image. I, it, yes, it's the law of secondary consequences says, you know, that it's the enemy you know. What, what could be in the wings could be far more frightening on that score, let's talk for a minute about what is happening. This seems, correct me if I'm wrong, the scale of the protests right now seems unprecedented. I have looked a bit at what is being covered better, I think, by European news at this point. We've been quite tied up with other things. And I do see that the current Ayatollah is telling, uh, trying to give some moral support, if you will, to the holy police and to you know all these players, you know, they're, they're just this apparatus that has developed around the IRGC, the holy police, all these things intended to sort of press down this culture that they would like to see in Iran in order to maintain control. But he's now having to give pep talks to these police and a hundred civilians have been killed. I, where do you see this ending up? I mean, when we look at Iran, we see something that it has a lot of potential. And what I hear you saying is there's no known leader to emerge and lead Iran out of this 40 years long state of affairs where it's been told that this level of oppression is somehow God designed and that the moral forces suggest that Iranians should live in poverty and that that's just the price that they pay for having a pure society. Where, where do you see this ending up over time? I think the tide of history is only going in one direction. It is away from the Islamic Republic and towards a secular future for Iran. What I don't know is if it will be a secular and democratic future for Iran, which I hope it will be. But there's the idea that you can create a sort of real world handmaid's tale in the 21st century when 
we're living in a world that is everyone is connected to everyone instantly, where everyone has information at their fingertips, where we can travel around the world relatively cheaply, is just ludicrous. And they're fighting a losing battle. That's my sense. It's clear to me that there's an entire generations in Iran, I would say everyone, everyone under the age of 50, pretty much, who feel that, you know, they want a fundamental change in Iran, and they just want to live a relatively normal life, like people all over the world, not just like Westerners. I mean, they want to live a normal life like people live in Malaysia, or in Taiwan, or in, I don't know, Addis Ababa, or in Morocco, or in, you know, a normal life where the state does not interfere in every private aspect of their life, where the state doesn't tell them what they can wear, who they can love, whether they can hold hands in public, what they can eat, what they can't eat. This level of intrusion into their lives, trying to create this, you know, kind of Islamic utopia is absurd. And they've really had enough of it. And I think they've been able to tolerate it for decades because the regime was willing to make some sort of accommodations with people. But as the regime has become more and more insecure over time and tightened and tightened the reins and tightened the restrictions and removed even the modest political space that there was for elections in Iran or something like that, then, you know, the people's ability to live alongside the regime has also diminished. And they've now reached the point where they're saying enough is enough. And so I think, you know, it's inconceivable to me that this regime is going to survive. It's lost all legitimacy. On top of that, you have political and economic conditions in Iran that are really unprecedented. The combination of sanctions, COVID, ecological disaster, demographic boom, you know, all of these things are working against um, the regime. What I fear is that precisely because, as you say, there are no political movements, organizations, leaders that can steer this movement in a democratic direction, I fear, I do have trepidation about, you know, what would come next. I know that the values of the people that you see in the streets of Iran are incredibly progressive. You know, it's amazing to me that generations of Iranians who've grown up in, in the Islamic Republic who've gone to the schools and universities of the Islamic Republic, who've consumed the television, the radio, and all of that of the Islamic Republic, what do they believe in? They believe in secularism, democracy, gender equality, <laughs> engagement with the world. You know, it's extraordinary because for them, life is the university that has taught them these things. You, know, you understand the value of freedom when you're denied it. You understand the importance of gender equality when you don't enjoy gender equality. You know, you understand the importance of free speech when you're denied free speech, you know. And so people, in a way, you know, their life has been a university, better, better than any university, you know, in teaching them the value, these, these kind of values, and they're standing up for that. But at some point, that has to translate into real political movements that can articulate their demands, that can moderate the most extreme elements of this anger that has exploded in Iran, and that at the end of the day can actually sit down at a negotiating table with the regime in the same way that Nelson Mandela sat down with the apartheid regime and Vaclav Havel sat down with the communists and 
right? I mean, at the end of the day, if we're going to have a transition in Iran that is not absolutely horrific and bloody, we have to find some way of talking to this regime. Now, it doesn't mean they're ready for that. I think we're a long way from that. But we will need to see authoritative figures inside Iran emerge who can speak on behalf of the demands of Iranians. I, I suspect they will be women. I suspect they will be pe people who have sacrificed a lot so far in this movement and who enjoy a lot of respect and sympathy amongst broad swathes of Iranians. I don't think it's going to be anybody outside of Iran. The figures who are outside of Iran, the best they can do is play a kind of supporting role. But, you know, nobody outside of Iran are, are, are sort of leaders of what's happening inside the country. And I think Iran's come a, become a bit of a welfare state. So you would have a situation in which that would shift as well. And there would have to be some socialization and understanding of what it's going to take to live in an environment where not everything is given to you and taken from you at the same time. That's going to require some massive shifts in thinking and the establishment of quite a few democratic institutions that um, may not be functioning right now. If you think about the number of Iranians, you know, in Silicon Valley, engineers and entrepreneurs, if you think about, you know, how successful, because this is a highly educated country with a tremendously deep well of culture that it can draw on. And so, in, you know, for 43 years now, the government's just stood in the way of that. And if you had a government in Iran that get out of the way of people and actually create an environment that encouraged creativity and investment, and you know, I think Iran would be would boom. It would be an economic powerhouse. But you need to create safe, stable, free environment for something like that to happen. But it's a country that has both the human resources, the natural resources. And the cultural resources, you know, in, to, to be a very powerful country um, economically, as it was in the past. That's right. And uh, it's true. The largest diaspora, I believe, is in California. We were sort of laughing in one of our earlier podcasts that the mayor of Beverly Hills is from Iran. That's right. Um, <laughs> and perhaps leadership could emerge jointly, both from within Iran and from forces outside of Iran that are Iranian. So that's a hopeful thought. Thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. It's been terrific to have you here. As things unfold, perhaps once this new Iran that we're imagining comes to be, we hope to have the opportunity to speak to you again. I'd be more than happy to. And just, you know, please keep your eyes on Iran. And, and remember that, you know, this Iran isn't, shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's not about Democrats or Republicans or, or our politics or our culture wars or anything like that. This is a really hopeful, I think, moment for human history. You know, if the Iranians are successful in getting rid of the Islamic Republic and replacing it with the kind of government they want, it would be as significant a moment as 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall. So keep your eyes on what's happening in Iran. We will. Our guest tonight has been Roham Alvandi. You can find his amazing book. We'll provide you with a link to that, which is called Nixon, Kissinger and the Shah, the United States and Iran in the Cold War. We'll also provide you a biographic link where you can find his other white papers, many of which discuss details of the topics that we've covered in the cast tonight. And thank you for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend and discuss it because it's probably going to be something 
that will affect the national security laws of the United States in the very near future. Remember to send us comments and feedback, at least for now, on Twitter. You can reach us at ABA NATSAC, or you can send us an email directly at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. NSLT's producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager, and my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would be impossible. If you were among the 650 or so smart people who attended this year's National Security Law Conference here in Washington, thank you. We hope to see you next year. But between now and then, we'd like to see you at all of our breakfast speaker events. They're wonderful. They're local. You can get there on the Metro, bike share, or any way possible. Take care, and we will be back next week. And by the way, we don't know the outcome right now of the World Cup, but it would be my belief that playing Iran is another act of diplomacy. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.